through those seven. It's really interesting, eh? So we're talking about money and wealth. I'm not sure if you picked that up from the from the verses, but it's the, it's the obvious theme. And uh, you know, if there's any, if there's one topic that churches are known for generally, uh, for better or worse, it's about how they how how churches seem to always be asking for money and you know i think part of that is a is a is a just critique of things like the prosperity gospel and prosperity teaching of saying oh if you just give money to us then you'll be blessed with more money and that type of really manipulative um stuff that happens in the world when actually I think like, you know, most churches do, do really good work with the funds that God gives them, but even within churches. And I think that we would say this is true of our church, no matter how much God gives us, we always want just a little bit more and God will give us more. We say, well, we want a little bit more than that. And, um, that mentality is interesting because it manifests itself in the church in the budgeting process, which we're about to go to enter into. But it's just a manifestation of a thing that already happens in everyone's life more generally. And so in that sense, it's a bit of an unfair critique because it's um, expecting the church not to be influenced by sin and holding a, holding a, holding multiple standards that being said um, there is something in this passage to that that will speak to us about that impulse of wanting more and more and more and more and always asking God for more and more and more without being content with what we have already and so prepare your hearts for that <laughs> prepare your your minds and your your hearts for the the message that he has for you this morning from this text because in the church outside of the church money is the root of all kinds of evils it's at the it's at the it's at the the root system of of all sorts of evil that happens in the world and that happens in our own hearts uh you know, we can't serve two masters. We can't serve Jesus and money. And this text is going to make that actually a little bit clear for us. So which one are we going to choose? That's the that's the question. I want to show you a painting that was done at the time of the Renaissance. This painting is called The Money Changer and His Wife by... I might, I might brutalize this name, so I apologize. Quentin Matsis. Uh, really interesting painting. It's a... Money changer and his wife sitting at their table, uh, counting gold and such. And there's different things in the painting, but just take a look at it and make note of your impressions of it. What do you notice happening in the painting? What is this painting trying to tell you? We're going to take a look, a closer look at it at the end of the sermon. But I wanted to show this because it is a great representation of what this passage in Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us. 
and really what scripture consistently tries to teach us about about money and idolatry and making something that isn't supposed to be the center of our lives the center of our lives and the danger that that causes so just keep note what are some things that you notice about this painting and we'll take a look at it again in a little bit but in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes the first thing we read about and we didn't read this passage when you were reading it earlier starting in verse 8 it says that, that if you see the poor oppressed in a district injustice and rights denied do not be surprised at such things don't be surprised don't be surprised when injustice happens because our world is sinful and our systems and structures are as sinful as we are everything under the sun is infected by sin by disorder by chaos and so when we see injustice scripture constantly remind us you shouldn't be surprised it shouldn't be shocking to you it should cause you to mourn and it should cause you to seek to bring justice but it shouldn't be a surprise especially in terms of money consistently we can see uh, money being and riches and possessions being both a blessing and a curse in scripture and in just our just our lives we'll talk about that in a second but everything is infected by sin every every bit of it our economic system this is interesting eh? that um I, I was talking with an expert in the field of economics and finances and he was saying that trickle this idea of trickle-down economics that reagan uh president reagan really pushed forward in the 80s was championed and really thought about uh, deeply by a christian who said you know this would really work if we could get it going and it probably would work really well but he forgot one really important thing sin and how humans are sinful and greedy creatures he didn't account for it and so now we know that trickle-down economics just doesn't work because the people people get greedy and we should just that that's just a that's an obvious thing that we can look at the systems and strike that's just to say the systems and structures structures of our of our lives are are influenced by sin but even all all the more so when there's money involved and we see this in the in verse 9 the increases from the land is taken by all the king himself proc profits from the fields but it says everyone in in israel is to it gathers gathers wealth from the fields they gather crops they're able to engage in business but the king profits from the fields as well it seems to me like this is an indication of sort of a uh, almost like taxation uh, there's an injustice even within the within this process of increase the increase from the land is taken in by all but there's there's levels of structure that actually allow the king to profits from that thing that is being taken up by all this increase from the land in the previous verse it talks about there's a, there's one official over another over another 
and there can be different there can be actually various levels of of injustice that happen all at the same time when we see this it shouldn't be a surprise sin infects everything but don't lose heart don't lose heart and we see why not in the next couple of verses well first how do we not lose heart it's by shifting our gaze shifting our gaze on the one who gives the good gifts in the first place on the one who brings justice fully into the world on the one who says i am going to make all things right and even if they're not made right immediately we can look forward in hope for the day when they are going to be certainly going to be made right when jesus comes to judge the living and the dead so if we shift our gaze just from even here and now beyond the the here and now to uh that which is happening in the in the spiritual realm and and the promises that god has given us that will certainly come to fruition it will change our entire perspective and allow us to live as people of God's kingdom that proclaim his kingdom with our lives, proclaim a kingdom of hope and peace and joy, faithfulness, compassion, justice, because our, or because, because our eyes won't be fixed on, on the here and the now, and we won't be surprised by the here and the now because we know what to expect. We can expect sin and injustice and pain and toil. But fixing our eyes on Jesus totally transforms, it should totally transform how we view this world, how we engage this world, how we live day to day in this world. So instead of focusing maybe on, on riches, which is what this passage is, is, is going to be all about as we get into it, we shouldn't we shouldn't focus on the riches we should focus on the one who gives the riches you don't focus on the gift you focus on the giver of the gift this is something that we try to tr teach children eh and we just know that this is right inherently that if someone gives your kid a gift you're trying to train them to say thank you and to appreciate the person giving the gift not the gift itself necessarily why because the gift is is in some sense meaningless it's a vapor as they grow up they're going to toss it away but that relationship with that person hopefully does not it's able to flourish over time and we don't want our kids to get into the habit of thinking that they deserve gifts because that then it wouldn't be a gift thinking oh in this situation i'm going to have a a particular expectation of what's going to come to me we say no 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 you have to treat relationships in your life with much more respect and courtesy than that but it is not how we treat our relationship with God our Heavenly Father we do not follow the teachings that we try to teach our kids we tell our kids you know, focus on the giver of the gift, not the gift itself. 
You can be appreciative of the gift, absolutely. But don't be quick to ignore the person giving it to you. Make sure you say thank you. Make sure you, you, you show your appreciation in, a, in an appropriate way. But what do we do with God? We say, God, you, you must give us what we want. <laughs> and we're quick to ignore God the moment he does give us what we want, aren't we? We're quick to place him on the back of our mind once we see the gift in front of us and not think about, okay, who is the one who has given me this thing, this gift? Whether that is, whatever, whatever that is in our life. Oftentimes, this can be money. But here's the thing about money. We see it in verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is a vapor. And this is sort of the thesis of the rest of the passage. You can never, if, if you love your wealth, you can never have enough of it. If you love making money, you can never make enough money, but it will leave you totally unfulfilled. You are never, ever satisfied by it. This thing that should be a good gift from God is actually something that because you're totally focused on life under the earth, on the here and the now, and not fixing your eyes on Jesus, and orienting everything you do, everything you say, everything you you are given in this life, and it orienting it, you're not you you're not orienting it in in service to Him. It leaves you totally unsatisfied, especially as you get later on into life. As goods increase, so do those who consume them, and what benefit are they to the owners except? to feast their eyes on them. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Instead of peace of mind, oftentimes our abundance permits us to have no sleep. And, in, and, our, and our gaze on our wealth, on our possessions, on money, can be sort of like the dragon and the hobbit looking out over his treasure constantly keeping watch over it and worrying about it and that becomes his life or Gollum a better example maybe with the one ring the one precious his precious sometimes we look at our bank accounts and say this is my precious or particular items in our houses these this is my precious and we get so fixated on that one thing that just like Gollum, it sucks the life out of us because focusing on that one thing wasn't what we were designed and made for. We were, fo we were made and designed to focus on one thing. But that one thing is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you remember back to when we went through Revelation, Revelation paints a picture of heaven really being this place where all of our focus and attention is on God and his goodness and glory extending into forever. Like a mind-blowing experience of, of constantly knowing, uh, constantly getting to know the unknowable. <laughs> that's a bit of a mind twister, but that's, that's the 
picture of getting to know God in relationship that, that scripture provides. We can gather more and more wealth and we can work hard and gather more and more money and possessions, but they leave us totally satisfied in the end. And oftentimes, you know, possessions can be something that, that we get and we find a lot of joy in for a moment, but that moment passes like a what? Like a vapor. We try to grasp hold of it and it disappears. Wealth is not something that we can build a firm foundation for our life on. It is ultimately a vapor. It never leaves us satisfied. And if you love money, you'll never get enough money. And where does that lead? It certainly permits us no sleep. And even worse than that, Solomon in verse 13 says, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. This is, this is a phrase that he uses that he's trying to describe something that it's sort of like his way of saying, this makes me sick to my stomach, what I'm about to tell you, or what I have just told you. This is, a, I've seen a grievous evil. I've seen something so evil that it makes me sick, that I just want to, my body revolts against it. So what, what is the grievous evil that he has seen? Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. He says, this is, this is a really, this is really awful. That wealth can actually destroy people. That they hoard it and hoard it and hoard it. It can just ruin their lives. But it can also be that we hoard and hoard and hoard. And try to invest it to be able to hoard more. And it ends up being that we lose everything that we're trying to invest and then all the subsequent generations that would have been blessed by that which god had given you isn't able to be passed on anymore this is something that happens in our day this is something that happened in in the in the in the um in the ancient world not through stocks obviously but through things like shipping and and, and business ventures where you could put a lot of wealth in and if a storm rolls through and and smashes the a, a ship against the rocks there goes your investment wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners oh, it's interesting just the hoarding of wealth oftentimes i think is is sort of having a posture of, you know, I, I can take this hoard of money with me when I'm gone. I will be able to bring it with me. And that's not any, like, everyone knows that's not true, but it's the way that we approach life. I can gather all this stuff and I'll bring it with me to wherever I go. And we hoard and hoard and hoard but the reality is we only ever hoard for the next generation. We only ever gather to meet needs now and then to be able to pass things on to another generation of people who will come after us. 
And we have to keep that in mind when we start doing things like, like, um, well, well, just, just any sort of investment in thinking about the future. It's not, the future is not just about, you know, a year from now, it's about 50 years from now. It's about a hundred years from now. What are we leaving our kids and our grandkids that will be a blessing to them? In the ancient world, if you hoarded wealth and harm came upon you, if you lost all your wealth and misfortune, in, in a misfortune, it, it could lead to every subsequent generation moving into deeper levels of poverty. And now this thing that was supposed to be used as a blessing turns into a curse. This thing that could have been used to bless subsequent generations curses them because the person hoarded it all for themselves and allowed it to destroy them. This is what money does. We, we get consumed by it and it destroys us from the inside out. Solomon wants to remind us again and again, we don't get to take our money with us. We don't get to take our wealth with us. We don't get to take our possessions with us. They are just a vapor. That's all they are. And so as we go through the rest of this passage, you see it, right? Because he, he makes a, he makes this argument that essentially quoting from Genesis, actually, that everyone comes from their mother's womb. Everyone's made of dust. Everyone has to work and toil in this life. But guess what? Everyone ends up in the same place. From dust we came, to dust we shall return. Again and again, Ecclesiastes is reminding us this. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness and great frustration, with great af frustration, affliction, and anger. This is a grievous evil, he says. That makes him sick to his stomach. That we work and work and work. And all of that toil is just tossed into the wind. We don't get to take any of it. And it's trying to tell us, you know, don't overwork yourself. He's going to remind us again in, a, in, in just the next verse to, in, to spend some time to, to work with one hand and then engage in, in something pleasurable in the other. Enjoy your life. Because you can't take that, that stuff that you're gathering from your toils with you. You can't take your work with you. You can't take the money that you gained, the, the house that you buy, the computer, the cell phone, the, the whatever. You can't take it with you. I think some of, some of us might really need to hear this. You can't take it with you. And so how are you using the gifts that God has given you to be able to bless others and bless coming generations? How are you investing in God's kingdom as a way to say it? How are you investing your, your money in a way that is going to honor God? How are you using your money even today to honor God? That's what this passage is trying to invite us into. It's trying to get us to reflect on, okay, in a world full of sin and evil and death, 
hoarding money is is just a is something that that might seem good at the outset. It might seem good to gather as much money as we can, but that's replacing God at the center of our lives with something else. It's idolatry. Replacing God with money. That's what essentially hoarding does. And so we try to hoard and hoard and hoard and, and focus on that money at the, to the detriment of our relationship with God, to the detriment of our relationship with others, such that we may end up, as we read last week, in a position where we are utterly alone and, and misfortune falls upon us and this thing that God has given us to be able to be a blessing to others, that is money and wealth, becomes a curse on our lives and a curse for the generations to come after us. We can't take any of it with us. And just in case we start to get depressed at this point, Solomon wants to remind us again and again of what it means that we worship a good God who gives good gifts. He says this, this is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, to find satisfaction in the toil, some labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. God keeps them occupied not with toil or trouble, but with gladness of heart. What a beautiful picture because it paints this picture of of really giving us permission to to experience joy in the gifts that God has given us. And he reminds us, God gives us good gifts in this life. Like these are good gifts. Wealth and possessions can be a good gift, even more than that the ability to enjoy them is a good gift. The ability to accept our lot in life is a good gift, whether we have a ton of money or whether we have none. God gives this gift to us to be able to accept our lot. And God gives us a gift of happiness in toil. As we do hard work, God fills us with his happiness. This is the gift of God. That keeps us occupied with gladness of heart. And these gifts are all trying to point us towards the gift giver. Because if we try to focus just on each of those individual gifts and make them the center of our lives, it's we're going to end up just as what this passage is saying riches will do to us. They'll steal our soul away. They'll we'll never find satisfaction we if we make wealth and possessions the center of our life we won't find satisfaction if we try to make enjoyment and pleasure the center of our lives we will not find satisfaction in that if we try to make our lot in life the center of our life 
which often means trying to change that lot and not being content with what we have. If we are discontented, <laughs> we're just going to be totally unsatisfied for the entirety of our lives. And if we try to make happiness the center of our life, it's not going to satisfy because it's all vapor. But our relationship with God is different. Our relationship with this good gift giver is all will actually bring with us once the once our once our time on earth has come up to an end. We can't bring our money, possessions, anything, but we go with this relationship. And so all of these things are good things that he's that Solomon is listing, but they're not the main thing. The main thing is not the gifts, it's the gift giver. So enjoy the gifts, but don't idolize them. Receive them, enjoy it, be contented having received a gift at all, no matter how large or small, because you know that it comes from the gift giver who knows exactly what you need and who gives good gifts to his children. Do you remember that painting that I showed at the, at the beginning? Let's take another look at it. Here we go. A reminder, this is The Money Changer and His Wife by Quentin Matsis. And really interesting painting. I, I hope that as you look at it again, you'll notice the, the table, which is sort of the focal point. It's where your eyes are supposed to be drawn to, is, the, is everything on the table. Because if you look at their faces, what are each what are the money changer and his wife looking at? The money changer is looking just about straight down at all of the riches in front of him, and that his wife has a what looks to be an illuminated Bible. That's a Bible with all sorts of really intricate uh, paintings and and drawings within it. Uh, very very expensive at the time of this painting in the in the fifteen hundreds. She has this, this Bible or spiritual book open. And where are her eyes pointed? They are not pointed at that picture of Jesus in that book, are they? They're, they're pointed off to the side, looking at all of that money. And the, the artist is trying to make a point that, you know, we think that we can be more spiritual than other people. We think that we can be better, that we won't fall into the same traps of wealth and possessions as other people. It's not true. It's just not true. Because sin affects our life just as much as it does everyone else. And so we think of ourselves maybe as being, if we were that, if we were that, that, the woman in the painting, if we were in her position and we had this beautiful Bible open, we'd all, we'd definitely choose to read that Bible and focus on Jesus instead of those riches. But we say that even now, this past week, I bet, 
if you had you probably had opportunities where you could focus on Jesus or focus on something else and you chose the something else instead of Jesus and friend you need to repent you need to refocus your life on Jesus and refocus on his grace and mercy and compassion so that you can live a life of grace mercy and compassion energized and filled with his spirit And you'll notice the author, or the, the author, the, um, the artist, has a really interesting drawing right in the center of the table. It's a little mirror, and I'm going to zoom in on it so we can see what it shows. So picture, it's a, it's a window. This is right in the center. You can see it. We'll zoom back out right beside the Bible, to the, to the left of that Bible. You zoom in. It's a window, but it, it's in the shape of the cross, and there's a person reading a book in it. And art historians know who that person is. That's a self-portrait of the artist reading the Bible, and he's trying to say, he's, by, by painting this painting, he's trying to say, I know that this is something that could happen to me, and I need to be reminded of my place at the foot of the cross. And this is something that we need to be reminded of as well. That our life is not meant to be focused on wealth and possessions, on, on pleasure, on happiness. That's not what we were designed for. Our hearts and our minds were, and our, and our spirits were designed by God to find fulfillment and joy ultimate fulfillment and joy in relationship with him. And so every time we, we, we focus away from Jesus, we're actually walking away from how God would have us live and how God designed us to live. But every time we choose to focus on Jesus and to center our lives around him and to glorify him in all that we do, to use wealth and possessions to build his kingdom, to introduce people to him. Well, that glorifies him. And that's living the life that, that God wants us to live, this full life in God's kingdom. So instead of focusing on all the gifts in your life, you know, don't, Just stop. Stop focusing on money, on possessions. Stop focusing on all the things that want to take God's place in your life. And instead, reach out for the cross, just as that painting is trying to tell us and what this, this passage of scripture is inviting us into. Reach out for the cross and receive God's grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and love. And with all those things is promise of treasure in heaven and even more than that, right relationship with God through Christ. And it's there and only there that you will find full satisfaction in life. And once you have that, 
you can live your life filled with joy no matter the kind of wealth that you may have. Relationship with God changes everything. And so if you're in the place where you're asking questions about God and Jesus, or maybe just need to, and, and asking questions about like, what does this mean to commit to him? Well, this book is inviting you to do just that. Inviting you to, to focus not on all these other things, but to focus on Jesus and to live your life according to the way that he teaches how to live. What a great reminder for us, whether we've been a, whether we're a new Christian or whether we've been a Christian for a, a really long time, fix your eyes on Jesus, the, the author and perfecter of your faith. Let's pray, friends. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder to fix our eyes on your son, Jesus, our Savior. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see the gifts that you have given us in our life. And if they are at the center of of our hearts and our minds taking the place that belongs to you rightly. I just pray that you would make that known to us and that you would do the surgery necessary to remove those things from your place and to fill us with your spirit instead. Help us to see how we can use wealth, not as a curse today and in future generations, but as a blessing for today and future generations. And Father, as we as we give and give generously of wealth and possessions and time, I pray that you would uh, bless us with these gifts of enjoyment and acceptance and contentment and happiness. But most of all, Father, I just pray that you would fill us with your joy, a joy that only comes when we are in deep relationship with you. Give us, Father, clean hearts and generous hands that we might be part of building your kingdom here in Hamilton and around the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.